Hey, I'm all set. I got the ticket. I'm going to the Cayman Islands this Friday. I don't get you. Who goes on vacation without a job? What, do you need a break from getting up at 11? Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey guys, Ian here. Thanks for tuning into the show. This week we have a special show. Dan is off gallivanting around with his family in Asia. So I am here with Andrew Udarian of E-Commerce Fuel. Andrew and I sat back and we talked about a few things this week. First, we started the episode talking about bootstrapping, what it means to be a bootstrapper, how these businesses work, what are some of the differences between these businesses and funded businesses. Next, we talked about the dropshipping model. Andrew owns a site, Right Channel Radios. That's how he got into this whole thing is he is a dropshipper. And so we talk a little bit about the dropshipping model and what we think is going to happen there in the next few years. Finally, we wrap up the episode talking about Andrew's community over at e-commerce Fuel. It is a community for online entrepreneurs that are looking to build online stores. And so Andrew and I go into depth about the difficulties of running a community and some of the challenges that we're both facing. So I hope you'll stick with us to the episode. It's about 30 minutes long. And without further ado, here is Andrew. I think if you want to build something enormous, like if your number one goal in life is to be the next Elon Musk and build the next Tesla or PayPal, unless you're a Morgan or a Rothschild or someone with an enormous amount of capital in the bank, yeah, you need to go out and get VC funding. But for pretty much any other goals that you have in terms of being able to shape the future of your business, to be able to like have a great work-life balance, all these kind of things have freedom, personal freedom, do whatever you want. Bootstrapping to me makes just a ton more sense. The reason I started out with bootstrapping was I didn't know anything and I didn't want to waste a bunch of money. <laughs> so nobody would have given me money when I started anyway. But you know, fast forward seven years since you've been in it, I, I, mean, I think you could probably go out, I could go out, especially in today's environment and raise a bunch of money for something. But don't do it because I love having complete control over my business. I don't want to answer to a bunch of other people. I love having the flexibility in terms of a lifestyle where you know, if you want to take off for a month or two months and you have a business that's automated and really well systemized, you can do that. You know, If you're taking other people's money and you take off for two months and just to relax, they're going to freak out. They're not going to be happy about that. So yeah, there's a ton of reasons why maybe it takes longer to scale up a business, but there's so many other fringe benefits, especially non-financial, that makes it a no-brainer for me. Yeah, we were talking before the podcast, you're getting ready to hop in a van with your family over the summer and go on a road trip for a month and a half. And you said, I really don't have any itinerary. I don't know when I'm going to be back. I don't know where I'm going to shower. I don't know any of these things. But what I do know is that I've hired somebody, they're in place, they're trained, and then they're going to run the business for me. And so that's really, really exciting, I think. And that's not probably something like you said that you can do if you took a bunch of money from somebody. Your investors are going to be pounding down your van door asking you (laughs) when you're coming back to work. It's one of the benefits, but I think you're right, Andrew. I think at this point, there's a couple companies out there that I think have done this successfully. Lead Pages comes to mind. WP Engine did this. They started bootstrap 
shop businesses. And then when they realized that there was a market and when they realized that there was some kind of exit strategy potentially or some kind of bigger play that they couldn't bootstrap their business to anymore, then they went out and raised money. And I think that that's an interesting perspective. You know, we see these companies out here and the idea behind it, especially for somebody that hasn't done it before like me is like, hey, I've got this great idea and there's so much money right now that people don't know where to invest or how to invest. They're just going to give me a bunch of it and bet on me and expect that this company is going to blow up. As an investor, like I just think, wow, there must be like a lot of dumb money out there right now. But as a bootstrapper, I just think like that is not the way that you build a business. The way that you build a business is you identify a market, you identify a need, you identify some customers, you actually build the business, you get some revenue going. And that's what you've done with Right Channel Radio. So why don't you talk a little bit about the inception of that business and how it came to be? For Right Channel, it was the first business I ever started probably seven years ago and got done with a corporate job, wasn't loving it, kind of your typical story of just too much work and none of life balance and quit and just look for a niche thought radios was an interesting one. And so I started a dropshipping business doing that. And, you know, really started with 1500 bucks because you don't need a whole lot. I mean, a lot of times it's easy to look at money as a solution. And, you know, I don't know if you've done this in your business, but you got extra money laying around. Or if you take VC money or, or angel money, it's easy to say, oh, I got $200,000. This is going to help the business take off. A lot of times throwing money at a problem is not what it needs. And you just see the money disappear, especially if you're not invested in actually making that work. And so for me, just what my business needed early on was me to just hustle and figure out what the market was and build it up and figure out how everything worked. That's, I think, what the biggest, as an entrepreneur, you got to do in the early days. You can't pay someone to do that. You know, just kind of did a lot of SEO myself, built up, get a website, and over the years, built it up to the point where it was supporting my family and grew to a business size where it was kicking off cash and allowed me to go into other ventures. So that's kind of the real rough, rough genesis story. And one more point back to the VC thing is bootstrapping. I think there's this kind of misconception with bootstrapping that if you're a bootstrapper, you can only build tiny businesses. You have to, you know, survive on ramen for decades at a time and you can't build anything meaningful. And to me, bootstrapping just means growing with your existing resources. If you've got it over years of you know, saving the money and, and having a profitable business, you can build a business with a million dollars in cash, but you're the one who's funding it. You're not taking all these outside interests. When I think about plowing money back into my business and we can talk about how you plowed money back into Right Channel Radio, yeah, I've got a couple dollars now. What would I do with it if I had to put it back into my business? And a lot of times, Andrew, in the bootstrap business, the answer is nothing. I would do absolutely nothing. I wouldn't plow, in some cases, the money back into the business. I would take the money and I would put it into another venture. I would put it directly into my pocket. I mean, sometimes these businesses, they don't need money. What they need is expertise. They need good people working on them. You know what I mean? It's like they don't always just need money. 100% agree. But you did actually plow money back into your bootstrap business. And so tell us a little bit about this. I think it was six months ago or so, you decided to plow $50,000 back into your company. And we're not talking about trickling it back into your company, <laughs> making a long-term investment. You said, here's $50,000 on the side of my desk. I'm going to give this over to who? To break it down, it was about 30K in development and design costs for a new website and about 20K in staff expenses over that period to really rehash or completely redo our entire website. So our site was terrible on a mobile front and mobile has been blowing up and our conversion rates on mobile were just awful. And we had a few other usability things that we identified. So really, it was just a massive six-month 50K project to redesign the whole website. And so that's what we did. I can get in. I don't know if you want me to, to get into kind of how we thought through it and if it was a good idea 
engineer or not, but that was that's what we spent the money on. You know, you were making a big gamble. I assume like sales had plateaued or something had happened and you figured like, well, how am I going to take this to the next level? I mean, what was your kind of frame of mind when you decided to reinvest in this company? And also like keep in mind, because yes, this is a bootstrap business. Like you didn't have $5 million sitting behind you just ready to deploy on whatever you wanted to deploy it on. So I think a lot of being a bootstrapper also requires you to be very frugal and to think a lot about your decisions that you're going to make and make sure that they're going to count because this is not a small amount of money for a bootstrap dropship site, right? Not a small amount of money for me. <laughs> right. You know, in terms of thinking through it, sales hadn't plateaued. We had a terrible year. I mean, every year up until 2014, we had grown in the top line and, and things have been nice and rosy. 2014, we just, sales just fell off a cliff. I mean, sales were down 30% year over year, which is enormous. And so I had to kind of sit down and really say, holy cow, like, what is going on here? And it was at the point where I either need to say, I need to take some serious drastic action or I just need to sell this business and cut my losses. And so decided to you know identify that mobile was a big issue. There there were some usability issues. We identified these pain points and said, okay, well, how much is it going to cost to fix this? So we put, you know, the 50K and that's the investment. So on that, we looked at a couple things, or I did rather, looked at one, how much do I actually think this can increase, you know, the profitability of the business? So you make some assumptions there, but I've done a couple of redesigns, so I had a rough idea. And then secondly, you don't just look at, or at least I didn't just look at the, the income stream annually, but you also look at the increased value to the equity of the business. So if you increase a business's earnings by, let's just say 50K every year, you get that 50K every year, but the value of the business, if you were to sell it, goes up anywhere from two to three times that 50K. So 100 to 150K. You bake that into it. Plus you also, if you ever decide to sell, it's so much easier to sell a business that is growing as the one that's contracting. And, and I'm not planning on selling it, but that's something you bake into the value. So we looked at the 50K cost versus the increased value in terms of earnings and equity in the business and said, we don't know if this is going to happen. Don't know for sure. But I think it's a pretty good expected value gamble. And so we did it. Yeah. And I think you had some pretty amazing results. You go into that on your site and exactly the kinds of things that you expected and the results that you got. So Andrew, it's interesting to hear that sales hadn't plateaued, but you were really feeling like there had been some kind of dip, right? And so you felt like this was kind of necessary. Now, what do you think about deploying cash back into your business when everything's going right? I mean, I think a lot of people have this issue, which is like, hey, everything's going well. I've got a nice line that's headed straight up to the sun, but I'm starting to get all this cash because the company's doing well. What are your thoughts on redeploying that money back into the business? How do you do that effectively? That's a really good question. And I think it's one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur with making judgment calls like that. I think it depends on what it is. Let's say if you've got a paid campaign, let's say like a, a retargeting campaign, and it's just incredibly profitable for you, but the only problem is you don't have enough cash to fund it to the maximum amount that you can to buy as much qualified traffic. Yeah, max that baby out. <laughs> but I think a lot of times people look at a business and say, maybe we should be doing more blogging, or maybe we should be adding a new product line or something like that. These unproven areas where it's just easier to hire someone and have them do it or pay a consultant than to you know kind of hash through it and see if it really works. I think it's a tough judgment call. I think if you can quantify it and very easily say, I put 10K in here, I get 20K out here. I know I'm going to do that. I'll do that all day long. But on some of the squishier things, I think a lot of times, especially in some of the niche businesses that kind of bootstrappers or kind of lifestyle entrepreneurs are in, you really see diminishing returns as you start to grow. And I think it's, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's a judgment call. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the things to keep in mind is to know, like you said, know how your business makes money. So for our physical product business, the way that we make money is by introducing new products. Time and time again, that is our number one way that we grow is by introducing new products. And so, you know, we can like optimize all this stuff 
And you actually had a great post that I read the other day about which metrics you should be paying attention to and which you shouldn't. You know, we can optimize for all these metrics like, you know, conversion metrics and all this stuff. And we have a guy that does that full time and he's great at it. But those are optimizations. When I really want to watch my company grow, I plow money back into product development. It's knowing that that's really important and understanding those numbers to make a move. I want to talk a little bit more about Right Channel Radio until we go into some other stuff here. And by other stuff, I mean your community because you have a community also. With Right Channel Radio, one of the questions that I had for you is, and I hope we can do a little bit of battle here because I think we might have opposing views. So Right Channel Radio is a drop shipping site. You don't sell any of your own products per se. These are all coming from suppliers. What do you think the future of this kind of business is? Because Here's my thought, Andrew. I'm always leery of these businesses because I feel like it's not super defensible, but obviously you've made an amazing business out of it. And I think the one example that I came up with that's kind of similar to your business is Crutchfield. Crutchfield is basically an online retailer for electronics. I've been buying with them probably the past 20 years. I mean, they resell car stereos, home entertainment equipment, stuff like that. The reason I continue to buy with them is because they have the best education online and anywhere else. And so when I call these guys up on the phone and I say, these are my requirements, the guy on the phone knows exactly which product I need and I'm willing to pay a premium for that. And so I kind of see some similarities between that and Right Channel Radios, but let me know, what do you think makes this business so defensible and so successful with you? Because essentially you're dropshipper, right? I mean, you're selling other people's products. It seems to me like it could get wiped off the face of the planet if some other dropshipper comes in. So how does it work? <laughs> Very valid points. For us, the two big success factors that have allowed us to make it work is, I think, fairly effective SEO and marketing. I think we've done a good job on that and driving cheap long-term traffic with SEO, which I will grant you is dangerous. I'd much rather have a really diversified four or five stream, you know, traffic stream that could diversify the risk of Google slapping us. And secondly, just what you said with Crutchfield, I think they're a great example. We're nowhere near as good as they are, but the premise is the same. We really, our niche is complicated. If you're going to install a radio in your vehicle, just like, because we kind of do CB equipment first, just like kind of home stereo or something like that. If you don't do it all the time, there's like eight different components you need to figure out what to install and it's confusing and and there's a lot of questions. So we have a lot of pre-purchase anxiety. So we've just spent a ton of time building a website that addresses those, that, that helps people understand what works well with what. But ultimately, you're right, Ian, like, Dropshipping, I think, is scary in the fact that, you know, it's not as defensible as building your own portable bar and something that you can proprietarily own. And I mean, in the future, looking down the road for us, we're going to either need to build out our own brand of products to sell alongside existing products, or I probably won't be investing heavily in that business in the future and or we'll sell it just because exactly what you said. I think it's getting harder to defend those kind of markets. So maybe we aren't doing battle. Maybe you agree with me. You don't have to. But and this, this makes for bad podcasting. I'm sorry to disappoint. That's really interesting to hear, though, from you because you've been working on this business for several years now, and it's it's really successful. So what kind of advice do you give to people that are trying to start a, a dropship business? And do you think that this is a business that's going to exist 10 years from now, maybe even five years from now? Yeah, I think it'll exist in five years, 10 years, maybe a little murkier. And I still think it's 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 definitely possible to run a dropshipping business and run it well. But I think the criteria for niches that make that work is much narrower than if you want to build your own product. Because if you're in a dropship, you got to add value apart from price. Try to do it on price, you're going to get murdered. You got to add through educational value. Not only that, you have to have a niche where there's a lot of accessories because... You could have the world's greatest website about big screen TVs, but people find what they want. They find it on Amazon for $60 cheaper. They're going to buy it from them because it's easy. People shop on our site. They find what they need. It's a basket of half a dozen products that all cost 20 to 30 bucks. That's a pain to comparison shop. 
So you can do it with dropshipping, but it's it's a lot harder to find the right niche. So you know, for people starting out today, I would recommend if you're brand new to e-commerce and you want to get started, you don't have a lot of capital, and you really just want to get your feet wet without risking a bunch of money. There's nothing wrong with getting a dropshipping site started. I learned a ton doing it. You can it's a great way to get your feet wet. And if you pick the right niche, even though it's a little harder, it can be an awesome lifestyle business because I don't have a warehouse to run. I have no cash flow issues. There are some upsides to it. But but long term to build a brand, which is what's gonna be most defensible with Amazon just eating the e-commerce world, it's a lot harder to do with dropshipping. And I think it's the risk to reward and the payoff long term is much higher if you can build your own product. Well, I think you're right on the mark there, Andrew, when you talk about not having any inventory and not having a lot of overhead and <laughs> warehouse space and all that stuff. So I'm curious to hear from you. What is the bottom line percentage wise in a business like yours? You know, gross margin is it varies. We're doing some price testing now, but it varies a little bit. But after you pay all your expenses, including employees, insurance, all that kind of stuff, we're we're about twenty percent net income margin off top line. We're at a similar number, and we have all the overhead and, like you said, all the other expenses and worries and inventory. So when you look at you know the business that I'm running, the business that you're running, at the end of the day, they put about the same amount in your pocket, but you have a lot less risk than we do in a lot of ways. And so I think that that's interesting. And I also think that your point is interesting, Andrew, that if you can parlay this idea of dropshipping into manufacturing your physical products, there could be some kind of opportunity there, I think. And what we're talking about here is, is essentially like a little bit longer runway for this kind of business. So I think we both agree that we're not exactly sure when Amazon and these bigger guys are just going to consume everything and the SERPs are getting smaller. And it's like, when are we just going to fall off the front page? So you got to have some kind of defensible approach, owning your own customers, owning your own products, having repeat customers that are loyal to you for some reason. These are all good things to do. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, on the flip side, it's always funny. You talk to a dropshipper and they'll say, oh man, if only I had my own product that was proprietary. You talk to a guy who's stocking their own stuff. They're like, oh, I hate, you know, if only I didn't have a warehouse and all the, you know, inventory that sucked up my cash. So it's grass is always greener. Right. But, you know, we may be close to the same on the bottom line, you know, 20%-ish plus or minus. But for you, well, you definitely have a more defensible brand and that you have your own brand, you have your own product. Long term, that's going to be more defensible than, than reselling other people's stuff, which is what I do. Sure. So let's talk about where this leads. And for you and I, it's kind of led to the same place. Brothers from a different mother, it seems like. <laughs> where it led for you, rather, was to a community. You had built this amazing business, Right Channel Radio, and you had sold another business. And at some point, you started blogging about it. Dan and I started reading your blog. And then eventually, you turned that blog into a community. So tell us a little bit about your community. Tell us a little bit about the people that are in there and what to expect if people join. So it's called the E-Commerce Fuel Private Forum, and it's a community for established e-commerce entrepreneurs and professionals. So people that have some experience either owning a store with a certain amount of revenue or they actually have professional experience either being employed by a store in an e-commerce company or maybe working as an email marketer or SEO or something like that. Try to really make it a place where people with real-world experience in e-commerce can connect, can talk, can share you know, what's going on in their life. And we've been doing it for about just about two years now, close to two years. And it's been a lot of fun. We've it's a lot of work. Like, I mean, Ian, you know how much work it is like running and growing a community, but it's cool in the sense that you're building something by networking people. It's kind of rewarding in a way that, that physical products aren't. So it's, it's awesome. One of the things that I still truly believe in having our community the DC the last couple of years, and you can agree or disagree with me on this, but I generally feel like there's an abundance mindset. And so people that join these communities, I, I generally feel like they're willing to share a lot, even though they're next to people that they might be competing with. How do you deal with that in your community, Andrew? Because essentially all these people own stores. Are, are any of them in the same niches? 
Yeah, good question. That's something, because we are a little more hyper-focused on e-commerce, I think there is maybe a little bit more of a concern about competitors. And that's something we've talked about. It's something we've got a few ideas to combat, but we haven't come up with I think, a fail-proof way to deal with it. So there's been people where we've kind of thought about doing immunity things, like some of our top members. There's one guy that came in and added so much value in a particular niche. I said, hey, man, who are your top competitors? And he, he told me he, who his top guy was. Had a very contentious relationship with him. And I said, if he ever applies, we're just going to flat out decline him. Just because he came and added so much. And I've heard from other people, too, that if they have a competitor join up, they're a little bit more weary about, you know, and careful what they share. So I think that's, it's a tough thing to figure out. That being said, I think people still are fairly and surprisingly open with a lot of things in their business that maybe aren't, you know, giving away trade secrets. But I think having that private environment, whether it's the DC or e-commerce fuel form, is really helpful because we talk about stuff like I know you guys do about taxes, about things that you wouldn't necessarily post in public if you knew it was going to get crawled by Google or seen by everybody. Yeah. And it's really a place to have those kinds of conversations. So that's interesting. The immunity approach, we've taken a similar approach in certain instances because you're right. These people show up, they provide tons of value. And then the last thing you want to do is let their competitor in, especially when they've kind of taken their clothes off. So I think that that's a very unique approach. It's something that's going to become an issue and, and already is. So you know, running these communities, Andrew, not the easiest thing in the world. And I think one of the things that's not easy about them is it's kind of different than a forum. It's more like a community. And one of the problems that's existing for us right now in this community is trying to find, and this has been a problem for like the last year and a half, trying to find decent software to have these conversations on or a decent platform. Why do you think no one has come up with a solution for this yet? And what are we waiting for? Should we go out there and develop this? Or do you think that there's just not enough of our communities out there right now? How are you dealing with this problem? Because it becomes a problem in facilitating conversations, right? And finding content. I don't know exactly why this is such an issue, but it is. So what are you doing to combat it? Well, I'm raising a huge round of VC fund to start a company to to go (laughs) solve this problem. It is a huge problem. And I think form software, a lot of times what these things run on is, I think you guys run on Ning, I believe we run on something called Vanilla Forms. And Vanilla Forms is a little bit more modern, but still, I don't think, I don't know if it's that there aren't enough communities that are like ours, that we're so niche that there isn't enough demand for the software in the market. I don't know if that's it or if just form software was one of the earliest pieces of software online. And so it really hasn't had to evolve much over the last 15 to 20 years. I'm not sure what the problem is. There's a, I don't know if you've heard of discourse, but discourse is probably what, if I was starting a form today, that's what I would use discourse. It's, it's form software for 2015. It's really impressive, but it's a problem. But even with something like discourse, if you're trying to manage payments and subscriptions, I haven't found anything that bolts in really nicely with form software in terms of managing payments. And it's a huge pain for us to manage those. And I imagine it is for you too. So I don't know. It's, it's tough, but it's definitely a huge hole in the market. Somebody came up with great form community software that had integrated billing and was really robust. Man, I'd, I'd pay a pretty penny for it. Like you said, maybe we should go raise a round, Andrew. I don't know what you think about <laughs> that, but I want to talk a little bit about your onboarding process and your churn. So we had a conversation probably a couple months ago and you told me your churn number and I just about fell off my chair because it was so good. And that's one of the problems that you have in these communities is churn. And the interesting thing with churn is you can kind of look at it and know exactly how long this business is going to stay afloat. It's kind of like a math equation into the future, if you know what I mean. Our churn is definitely not as good as yours and you have an incredibly low churn. And part of what you attribute that to is your onboarding process. So I want to hear a little bit about your onboarding process. And I also want to share some thoughts on that because I know you've got an amazing system. 
Well, thanks. We've tried to really prioritize onboarding. And I kind of liken it to joining a community is kind of like showing up to a party where you may or may not know people. And if you show up to a party and nobody really, you know, everyone's off in their own little click and discussion, you kind of hang out, you grab a drink, and then you're like, man, I can't find anyone to talk to. I'm going to go to the bathroom so I don't feel awkward. And you come back. You're going to have a terrible experience. You're probably not going to come back. And it's going to leave a sour taste in your mouth. But if you show up to a party and the host or someone who, who knows the host really well comes up, they introduce themselves, they're really excited to see you, you know, they chat with you for a little bit, they get you a drink. They introduce you to somebody else and kind of bring you into the, to the, the fold. You're just, I mean, the experience and the, the loyalty you have to them is, is just from that one little 20-minute interaction is just so much dramatically different. So we really try to, at a minimum, welcome all new members. Our community manager, Laura, she always writes a personalized email to everyone who joins up. I'm not perfect about this, but I always try to at least ping people as well by email that they join up just to welcome them and say hi and, and let them know I'm glad they joined. And recently, over the last couple months, we're doing kind of even going a step further and trying to introduce them to at least a couple people in the form right off the bat. One person that is just a regular that they're probably going to see posting fairly frequently so they feel like they know someone. And then a second person that is connected to them, like maybe if they're an email marketer or someone else in the email marketing world, someone that shares a similarity. We're trying to do a new member call so they can actually put you know faces to names. And so trying to make that more robust. We've had a lot of people tell us that, hey man, I was really blown away by your onboarding process. It made me feel like you cared about me and I'm going to stick around for a while because of it. Yeah, it's a really great process and we've stolen a lot of it. So thank you for that, Andrew. We've <laughs> implemented the new member calls, which have been great. Actually, we have two new member calls. So one is just like a pack as many people as you can into the go to meeting and have a call. I'll jump on that with Dan and Alex. And then the other call is what you said, which is like a one on one call. And we've implemented that too. And so I think it, you're right. It is really important when people come into your community that you're able to buddy them up with somebody, you know, say, hey, these are the people that you should know. You can do that either with an email, I think, or with a phone call. These are the things that you should be paying attention to because the bottom line is, like you said, at the party, you don't want to be lonely, but the bottom line, with this software. And I think a lot of it comes down to a software problem, Andrew, is that there just isn't tons of visibility on the community once you get in there. I'm a power forum user. So for me, it's a little bit different. I've been trolling forums for the last 15 years. But if you're just kind of getting into this kind of thing, you like show up to a forum, it's like very hard to tell what's going on. You see these little squares with these little faces on them and you <laughs> see these titles and you get intimidated to post, I think, in a lot of different ways. And so you've got to figure out a way to integrate people into the community, especially because it's a virtual community. I mean, like you said, you're not actually even showing up to a party. So I think that, like you said, the more that you can do early on in the game to get people engaged the longer that they're going to stay around in your community. And ultimately, that's what you're looking for because that will reduce your churn. Andrew, I think this has been a very, very interesting conversation. I think that we could talk for an hour and a half about these communities and this dropshipping. Are there any parting shots while I have you on the phone? I know that you need to start your day. No, I don't think so. Just one last comment on the, the onboarding that you mentioned is anytime you've got, got communities, that first you know 30 to 60 days is so crucial for new members to figure out if they're going to get habituated into checking your community, if they're going to engage. And like you said, with software, there's just there's not any good solutions out there. So we've, we've been kind of doing something where all of our new members for a two to three month period kind of go on a new member dashboard where we can, it's kind of manual, it's a ghetto process, but we see how many times they've commented, how, when they're logging in. And if they're not engaging, we try to proactively 
proactively reach out to them. We're kind of rolling that out now. But yeah, if anyone's out there, I know John Myers is, I heard some rumors through the grapevine. He was doing some stuff with, with maybe building something up like this. Would love to see it. Anyone else is thinking about doing something similar. It's a huge need in the market. So that's that would be my parting shot. If anyone uh, builds it, let me know. I'd love to sign up. Yeah, certainly. An easy way to get Andrew or myself or anybody that's running a community on the phone to talk to them is just tell them that you're building community, building software. And all of a sudden, everybody's calendars are freed up. <laughs> so Andrew, where can people find you? Where's your blog? Where's your community? Yeah, best place to find me is over at ecommercefuel.com. From there, you can find the forum, the our private community, the blog, pretty much everything I'm doing. It's the best jump off spot. Awesome, Andrew. Well, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Yeah, let's do a part two sometime and we'll really go into the meat and potatoes of these communities. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me on, Ian. guys thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode if you have any questions comments or concerns about me hosting the show in the future go ahead and jump over to tropicalmba.com this show will be at tropicalmba.com forward slash drop shipping life hope to see you next week hey thanks for listening to the tropical mba podcast you can go to tropicalmba.com get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.